I'm Elizabeth Hill, and this is 51%. Best-selling author Karen Carbo's book, In Praise of Difficult Women, Life Lessons from 29 Heroines Who Dared to Break the Rules, features women who refused to choose between being true to themselves or being accepted and loved. Carbo writes about Frida Kahlo, Nora Ephron, Hillary Clinton, Carrie Fisher, Elizabeth Taylor, Helen Gurley Brown, Laverne Cox, Lena Dunham, and others, all she says are spirited rule-breakers who charted their way with little regard for social or cultural expectations. Carbo spoke with 51%'s Allison Dunn in 2018. I've always been drawn to stories of women who have lived incredible lives. When I was a little girl, before I could even read, my parents had a subscription to National Geographic, and it was sort of during the height of Jane Goodall uh, and when they were covering her. And I remember looking at her in Africa with the chimps and just being swept away. And this was, you know, before I even started kindergarten. Um, So I've always been drawn to these stories and have always, you know, pursued the biographies of interesting women. And then when I was in um, my first semester in college, my mother died quite unexpectedly. And as it turned out in my family, I became at the age of 17 the oldest woman in my family. I had no grandmothers or aunts or cousins or sisters or anybody who was older than me. And at that moment in time, I I just found a lot of solace. Um, I I discovered Martha Gellhorn then. Um, It was a time when Frida Kahlo was coming into the fore. And, um, you know, they just, they provided me with inspiration and solace and a way to go forward in life because literally, I was literally on my own. So this has been, um, you know, a book that that has quite a genesis, a decades-long genesis. And, um, you know, like I said, this this is nothing that I kind of sat there and thought, now I can write about difficult women because this has been a, a passion of mine for quite some time. Karen, before we dive into speaking about some of the women you've written about, let's talk about using the word difficult in the title. Difficult can have a negative connotation, and I'm wondering how you hope it's perceived. Well, it it can have a negative connotation, and I'm hoping that, like nasty woman, it becomes just another word that we embrace, that we say, of course I'm difficult. You know, would you expect anything else? I think it's, it's, you know, the, the word is levied at women because we do feel the pinch of it, and we do feel the sting of it, and the point of it is to put you back in your place, right? It's like, stay in your lane, woman. Don't be difficult. Don't inconvenience us. Don't upset us. So I think if we, if we do no longer feel it as a slap, but just as an, a, an adjective that's accurate, uh, you know, we will take back some of the power of it. I mean, I was called difficult when I was in kindergarten, you know, my kindergarten teacher, I was having some problems um, switching from painting to story time, and I, I pitched a fit, and my parents came in, and my teacher said, um, you know, it was interesting, not the behavior. She did not say Karen had a temper tantrum when it was time to stop painting. She said, Karen insists on being difficult. Um, and I never knew, really, it took me like 20 years to actually figure out what that meant, because I was very confused when I was a kid, because I thought, no, I just want to finish my painting. The point is, is that, yes, it's a word that's, that's put on us when we, um, 
you know, we're not going along with the program. We're not, we're not um, honoring the cultural expectation of us to be nice and pleasant and consensus builders and not inconveniencing anybody else. The second we do that, not all the time, but often we risk being called difficult. How did you select the women you did? You know, maybe you had the first three or four, and then you had to give it a little more thought. So maybe you could take us through the process. Well, there are 29 women, and um, as you might imagine, it was a long process, and the roster changed, you know, dozens of times easily. Um, my bottom line for me was it had to be somebody who I was a little in love with. I, I was in love with her life, her choices the glamour, you know, her sassiness, and and she had to be inspirational to me. So for all the women that were considered, I had to think, like, do I have this heart connection with this person? Because I've written enough to know that unless you have that level of fascination, it will just be like a book report, you know, and especially because, you know, I had 29 of these essays to write, and so I had to be passionate. So that was the bottom line. Um, Beyond that, I wanted there to be diversity and, and, you know, I wanted there to be, you know, racial diversity and um, ethnic diversity. There are women from other countries, um, socioeconomic diversity, sexual orientation. I really wanted there to be diversity. I wanted there to be diversity among personality types. You know, there, there isn't just one kind of difficult woman. I wanted there to be introverts and extroverts and makers and doers and and talkers and thinkers and, and just a whole kaleidoscope of kind of the female character. So it got complicated because as the book started really taking shape and the slots became kind of fewer and fewer, it was like, okay, who, you know, what do I really want to represent here? What do I feel is missing? What do I feel, um, you know, I de- who do I definitely feel like I need to, need to include? So it, it was, it was a very long process, but um, the bottom line was that they really had to inspire me. It was just it was just quite simple. And as you explained, they do run the gamut, but maybe you could just talk about a few. All right. Well, you know, it's interesting because there are some that obvious that are, that are perhaps obvious. So Gloria Steinem is in the book, and I think we all you know have an understanding of of why she would she would be and have been called difficult. So she she was sort of like one of the banner carriers. But there are also people like um, Amelia Earhart, who was a girlhood idol, who was actually quite introverted. Um, And the introverted difficult women are the ones um, that really, really fascinate me, because I think when we think of difficult women, we think of women who are sassy and who speak out and who are leading the rallies and writing the books and, and, you know, talking. Um, Amelia was quite, she was a little shy. She was very polite, uh, you know, and very well-bred and very kind. But she was one of those women that basically just, did exactly what she wanted to do. Um, and she would still be polite and she, she would still be nice and she would just disappear and go to the airport and get in her plane and fly away, like quite literally. So um, that's one sort of difficult woman. Um, another sort of difficult woman, which um, I think people have been surprised by, is um, Elizabeth Taylor. One of the reasons why I included her is because she was, you know, she was born in, in, 19, in the 1930s and um, became an actress at a time when essentially actresses were sort of owned by the Hollywood studios. Um, their behavior was, was dictated by their publicists. They were supposed to be, you know, very, um, not, not as sort of out there and female and sexual as Elizabeth Taylor was. She was one of the first actresses who basically said, never complain, never explain, I'm doing exactly what I want, and you just are going to have to deal with it. So 
so that was her younger years. Then when she became an icon um, in middle age, she was one of the first people to speak out um, about the importance of raising money and awareness for AIDS. All of her managers and agents and friends said, do not touch that. Um, you know, it, it's going to put people off of you. Uh, nobody, nobody wants to think about it. It's the gay cancer. It was all of that. And she said, you know what? My friends are dying of this. And I really don't care what it does to my reputation. I'm going to use my power and use my voice to um, make people aware of this. So she kind of has a double difficult nature to her. You know, you pick such disparate women here among the 29. And apart from the obvious that the connecting thread is they're all difficult. What is another thread here for you? Well, that's an excellent question. and I've been pondering it because my, my interests are pretty uh, ecumenical, as, as it were. You know, I, I'm interested in a lot of things, and I'm interested in a lot of, you know, different walks of life that are represented here. I think if I was pressed, I would have to say that all of these women, on balance, were more interested in what they felt was true about them than in what the culture expected of them. Now, it's not to say that, that they would never, you know, be upset if somebody was disapproving of them or whatever, but they didn't, they didn't sort of contort their personalities to make other people happy. And I think, I mean, certainly for myself, you know, when I think of some of the wisdom I got from, from my mother, um, you know, a lot of it was, oh, don't, don't let people get upset. Uh, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. You know, and there was this way of like my mother, I think, knew I was going to be kind of the strong-willed female. And she was always trying to kind of find a way to sort of tamp that down and sort of mold that so I could move through the world in a way that I would be more acceptable. And I think my women were having none of that. Whoever they were, everybody else was going to have to kind of just get with the program or move along the road. So why 29? Um, well, it's, it was originally 30, to be honest, um, and it, it was something that uh, my editor, because the whole time I, I was writing the book over years, you know, we sort of were having this ongoing conversation about who was in, who was out, do we have too many writers, because, you know, writers are always fascinated by other writers, but not so much the rest of the world, as it turns out. Um, somebody um, that she thought was, was interesting to look at was Indira Gandhi. And I was already sort of put back on my heels. I'm like, I, first of all, I don't know too much about her. Like, it doesn't, she doesn't spring to mind when I'm just rattling off women that I'm, but I will because, because frankly, I'm an accommodating woman, not a difficult woman. We're not, or most of the time I'm accommodating. I said, you know, sh I will check it out. I will check her out and see if I can feel that feeling that I, that I require to move forward. And, um, you know, she certainly was a strong woman. She certainly, I think, dragged India into the into the modern age. But she also was a proponent of sterilization for her own people. And that was just the deal breaker. Um, I said, you know, that's a bridge too far for me. I can't find any way into that to make it interesting or inspiring or, you know. So, so there we were. And I said, listen, 29 is a great number. And I thought, you know, I've written a book about difficult women, and now I am going to be a difficult woman. 29 is a great number. It's a prime number. Years ago, they used to say, don't trust anybody over 30. So 29 is really a way better number than 30. And so I sold 29 as the number. <laughs> I love it. Indira Gandhi forces odd number for difficult women. It's great. So who else is in the book? There's some, a few funny women. I mean, Nora Ephron's in it. She's funny. Carrie Fisher, Amy Poehler. And I think it's always really important to 
never forget that any time a woman resorts to, oh, Margaret Cho is in there too, um, that any time women resort to humor, um, it's, it's pretty transgressive and provocative. And so, of course, there would, be, there would be funny people in the book as well. Karen, would you expand on this? Because even the women you just mentioned are very different in their humor. Right. Well, I think, um, you know, in particular, uh, you know, if you look at Carrie Fisher and Margaret Cho, they have used humor to discuss things that are, are pretty intimate um, and serious for them. Um, you know, Carrie Fisher, rest in peace, long before there was the Internet and social media um, and people were sort of sharing everything there is to share, she was quite upfront about her addiction issues and her mental struggles with her mental health. And she was also funny about it. And I just think that that, that that's just sort of a, a double whammy that it's very hard for people to kind of absorb that not only are you telling us, you know, these things about yourself that hurt you and that you struggle with, but you're also so damn funny. So, um, you know, that, that, that was sort of Carrie Fisher's mark for me. And uh, Margaret Cho, similarly, you know, she talks about, uh, you know, uh, American-Asian culture and, and the prejudice that exists there and her own experience in Hollywood having her short-lived sitcom uh, where no Koreans were worked on the crew or were on the show. It was just sort of any, any attractive Asian that they could get. <laughs> um, and she talks about that a lot as well, as, you know, in, in addition to sort of gender things and so on and so forth. And she's, she's really out there and very funny. So I, I just think when women you know, are not only sort of saying things that make people uncomfortable, but they're also very funny. Um, it's just, they're always difficult. I think you don't even have to, like, that, that always checks the box. That was author Karen Carbo speaking with 51%'s Allison Dunn about her book In Praise of Difficult Women, Life Lessons from 29 Heroines Who Dared to Break the Rules. You can hear her full interview on episode 1504. Dr. Bilha Chesner-Fish is an Israeli-American immigrant living on Long Island and in New York City. Dr. Fish is a distinguished radiologist and founder of Manhasset Diagnostic Imaging and Pathways Women's Health. Dr. Fish is a longtime advocate for community service and women's empowerment. In her book, Invincible Women, Conversations with 21 Inspiring and Successful American Immigrants, She speaks with women from around the world about their journeys to America and the obstacles they faced. We spoke last summer, and I asked why she decided to write the book. As an Israeli immigrant, I felt that uh, in the time that we live, um, it is difficult for young women immigrants to achieve their dreams. And when with the universal bond of sisterhood and the growing voices of Me Too, I decided to tell powerful stories with which I hope to refute the policies that staff immigrants into faceless group, no matter where they came from. They always feel that they don't belong. And uh, since my life mirrored theirs, I decided to tell those stories of those amazing 21 women, hoping that it will inspire young immigrants that feel that they do not belong. One of the women who you talk with in your book is Jacqueline Murk-Tete, who immigrated to the U.S. to live with an uncle she never knew after her family was killed in the Rwandan genocide. Here you have a woman who's lived the true horrors of racism and discrimination. I'm curious what her thoughts were 
on what's going on in the United States right now? Well, you know, I think that she feels she was privileged to be here. And her entire purpose has been directed now to rehabilitate Rwanda and to better the life of the people that live there. Certainly all the women in my book, including uh, Jacqueline, feel gratitude to the United States and believe that nowhere else they could have achieved what they achieved here. And they would like to be an inspiration to other young women and feel extremely badly to what's going on in the United States, the way immigrants are being treated. You know, it is certainly, as you can see what's going on now, it's much harder to be black, yeah. not only to be a woman trying to be achieving in a men world, but also you can escape from the color of your skin. And so carrying all this baggage and then coming to a country that you don't really know, you don't really identify with the culture or the language, it was very difficult for Jacqueline. And so she empathized with the immigrants' problems today, and she was very willing to speak and to be a part of the book. What was her healing process like? Well, you know, I think that she has been one of the lucky ones that in school, I think she was well-received. But the healing process is very long, and it lasts with you your entire life. I don't think you ever heal. But, you know, she was lucky to get into law school, to NYU. She is a lawyer, and she's became the president of the Rwanda Society, uh, hoping uh, to rehabilitate Rwanda. So you can imagine that having a purpose is a part of the healing process. I think in this day and age that we're living in, I can't talk to you and not talk about Wafa El-Sadr, who was a young doctor specializing in infectious disease in New York City at the beginning of the HIV and AIDS epidemic. Can you talk about what inspired her to specialize in infectious disease and her efforts to reach the unreachable? So Wafa is a really incredible doctor, very dedicated, and she felt that of all the specialties in medicine, infectious disease, is, she believed at the time that she specialized in it, that she can help, that, that there is a cure, that there is medication, there is antibiotics. So she believed that she would be treating patients where she would see good results. Unlike patients, for example, that have cancer, that at the time that she practiced, were dying. The funny thing is that when she came to the United States to specialize in infectious diseases, and she chose Harlem Hospital, which is probably one of the most is situation in the most deprived areas in, in New York, and people did uh, afflicted with infectious disease there. But when the AIDS epidemic came, she found out that uh, the cure was not there. There was a lot of shame and stigma associated with AIDS at the time, People didn't know how to handle it. And what she did was an innovative approach. She produced programs that included the family in the process of handling these patients. And 15 years later, where the drug for AIDS was discovered, which was not a cure by any means, but it's a way to survive. If you take the drug, you live a normal life. 
She then uh, became the head of infectious diseases and public health in the Milman School of Public Health in Columbia University. And she started the ICAP, which is uh, conceiving and producing those programs all over the world, especially for vulnerable countries like Sub-Sahara Africa. And with these programs, she taught families how to deal with AIDS, and she saved hundreds of thousands of lives. So when I approached her to tell her story in view of the situation of immigration in the United States, and she's an Egyptian-American immigrant, she was very willing to cooperate, and she was proud to tell her story. This is a person that really has made a difference in the world, not only in the United States. Yeah. What struck me was her reasoning for coming to the States. She... She's of the generation of Sadat and Mubarak in Egypt, but it wasn't their regimes or uncertainty that motivated her. It was finding her own path as a doctor. Did she share what surprised her the most when she made the move to the United States as a doctor and as a woman? You know, I think she always talked to me about the fact that as a foreign graduate, you know, foreign graduates were somewhat discriminated against in the United States. And... Uh, she feels that she has proved that no matter where you study medicine, you can achieve and you can make a difference. You should be considered equal. And I think that beside the fact that she had to adjust to everything else immigrants adjust to, which is the language, the culture, and, and being a woman at the time in medicine was not as common as today. Today, 50% of medical students are women. At the time, we were, I was the only woman in, in radiology in my hospital at the time. So she has been working in the men world. She was a woman. She came from Egypt and she was a foreign graduate. And I think she proved a point in many ways. I've highlighted two women from Africa, but your book showcases 21 women from Asia, the Middle East, Central and South America and beyond. What was the selection process for those you've included in your book? There is a lot of things that interest me. I love music. I like art. I'm a physician, so I'm interested in science. You know, the universe is really a mystery, and I always was interested in understanding whether there is other life in other planets. <laughs> so all this intrigue, all these things intrigued me, um, and uh, through the uh, New York Times, uh, word of mouth and my life journey, I met different kind of people. And uh, so I wanted this book to be diverse, to show that immigrants are contributing in many ways, in art and science, in law, and that a common thread is that they all give back. They all feel, all immigrants, all, all those women in my book feel that there's no other place but in the United States that they could have achieved. And they all contribute and they all give back, which is absolutely a wonderful thing about them. They give back to the community that supported them. Was there anything that resonated with you long after you wrote the book? Yeah, you know, what resonated with me is the fact that although we are American citizens and we feel American in every way, 
our, you know, mother land, mm-hmm. where we came from, is always a part of us. And we feel that there is a uniqueness about us that we bring to the United States a flavor that would have not exist without us. The culture, for example, that Arun brings to the United States is Indian American who is in charge of the Indian movie festival and art. She brought a flavor to the United States that was not there. People always thought of Indians as people that are riding on white elephants or something like that. Yeah. And she brought to the United States the Indian culture that was not as well known. And that's what I mean by us immigrants bringing the flavor that makes America special. Is there anything that I may have missed that you wanted to touch on in this conversation? Yes, I want people to understand, the readers to understand that what American immigrants bring to the United States, especially now in the time of the pandemic, how grateful we are, we should be, and how empathetic we should be to those immigrants who risk their life for us. They bring our mail, they take care of people in the hospital and in old age homes, they bring, they deliver our food, they risk their life for us. And I just hope that reading those stories of those amazing women will empower other women to walk in their shoes and to try to fulfill their dreams. That was Dr. Bilha Chesner-Fish discussing her book, Invincible Women, Conversations with 21 Inspiring and Successful American Immigrants. You can hear her full interview on episode 16, 15. Thanks for joining us for this week's 51%. I'm your guest host, Elizabeth Hill. Thanks to Ian Pickus and Tina Rennick for production assistance. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. Our theme music is Lolita by Albany-based artist Girl Blue. 51% is a national production of Northeast Public Radio. If you'd like to hear this episode again or share it with your friends, sign up for our podcast or visit wamc.org. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at 51% Radio.